Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to verse 18. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Evening, let me add my welcome to uh, Liam's. It's great to have you with us. If we've not met, my name's Andy. I'm, uh, I'm on the staff here, the Minister for Students. And um, we're going to spend the next few minutes uh, together looking at this uh, wonderful little passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. I wonder if you'd keep it open in front of you. And uh, I'm going to pray for us as we dig in together. So let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray that this evening you would help us to see more of Jesus Christ. Help me to unpack what this passage says clearly and faithfully and give us all ears to hear and hearts to believe that we would know and enjoy Jesus more for his name's sake. Amen. Well, um, for part of this week, I was away at a conference for ministers uh, down in Market Harborough, and um, uh, while I was there, I met a guy called Ishaya. Uh, Ishaya was in my small group for the first few days of this week, and it was really interesting to meet him because basically, he does the same job that I do. He's a Christian minister who has a particular focus on opening up the Bible with university students and teaching the Bible to them. Um, The main difference between um, Ishaya's job and mine is that Ishaya does that job in a place called Zaria in northern Nigeria. And um, northern Nigeria is a fairly tough place to be a Christian disciple. So as we chatted about what it's like for him doing ministry there, he said, well, hey, look, uh, a lot of the challenges... I I can't do his accent, and I won't, okay? But he said, look, a lot of the challenges are the challenges of every kind of Christian ministry. Um, Trying to proclaim Jesus clearly in a way that people can understand, to answer students' questions, to to help them through what it means to live for Jesus... Um, I suppose one of the challenges in in my church is that if people become Christians, they can be guaranteed that they won't get a job when they graduate in this city or at the university. They'll definitely have to move because the the Islamic groups that control most of the industry don't want us here. And, um, And some of them will probably die in the next few years 
Um, because they're Christians, and there are militant Muslims in my area as well, and sometimes they blow up churches. Uh, that's what he said to me. And, um, and I was thinking, goodness, Sheffield. Sheffield feels like an easy assignment when you meet someone like that. But I wonder how you react to hearing about Christian students in northern Nigeria. I wonder how it makes you feel to hear of Christians facing that kind of hostility. Maybe something a bit more trivial and closer to home. I remember a few uh, years ago, a friend of mine telling me that he'd got talking to his colleagues about his Christian faith and how some of the guys in the office had actually been quite sort of sympathetic and interested. But a number of them had started to make quite cruel jokes about him since he had that conversation. You know, it it was all in banter, but they definitely meant it. And he just talked about how much he felt that around the office. You know, not serious and life-changing. No one was going to blow him up while he was in church on Sunday. But, but it just made going to work and being a Christian that much harder. And I wonder how that makes you feel. I wonder how you react to Christians facing sort of ordinary, everyday hostility to hear that. I wonder how it makes you feel when Christians are derided in the media for holding to what the Bible teaches on ethical issues or something like that. How does that make you feel? Quite often, I, um, I go down to a little shop just around the, just around the corner from here. Um, it's, a, it's a chocolate shop, actually. You might know the one. Um, I don't actually go there because I'm a great chocolate lover, although I am. Um, but I often go there because I need to buy a card to send to someone. And um, you walk in the shop, and they've got a good range there, but I've noticed that cards basically fall into two camps. There are the sort of... Um, pastel-coloured sort of purples and things like that 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 are generally commiseration cards. You know, um, get well soon, I'm sorry for your loss, that sort of thing. And then on the other hand, there are the brightly coloured and sometimes um, terribly unfunny congratulations cards. You know, happy birthday, um, uh, congratulations on your new home, that sort of thing. And and you pick the one that's, um, that's relevant for the person you're sending a card to. Well, The letter to the Philippians that we are looking at um, this evening and over the next few weeks, we just started last week, we've got about 12 more weeks to run, Um, Paul is in prison in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, In uh, in verse 7 of chapter 1, he talks about being in chains. See, he's in prison, probably in Rome, and the... um, the, the Philippian church, the church in this city, have, um, have sent a guy called Epaphroditus to Paul. You can read about him later on in the letter in chapter 2. They've sent Epaphroditus with a commiserations card. We're sorry for your loss. We're sorry that you've been locked up in prison for, for all the opportunities that have been lost, for your gospel mission that's been brought to a, a, an untimely stop by the fact that you don't know whether you'll live or die. Um, commiserations. And Paul writes back the letter to the Philippians to say to them, guys, you're seeing this all wrong. Don't send me a commiserations card. Send congratulations. Just have a look at verse 12 of our passage this evening. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel Or again, at the end of our passage, the last six words at the end of that paragraph. And because of this, 
I rejoice. Do you see, these two paragraphs we're looking at this evening, Paul wants to change the way that we think about opposition and hostility towards Christians. Uh, He wants to change our perspective. He says, guys, don't send commiserations. Send congratulations. Celebrate. Two ways that Paul wants to change our perspective this evening. First of all, we see that passion for the advance of the gospel changes the way that you see opposition. Passion for the advance of the gospel changes the way that you see opposition. At three times in verses 12 to 14, Paul mentions the fact that he is in prison. Uh, In verse 12, he says, "Um, what has happened to me? In verse 13, he, he talks about how I am in chains for Christ. And in verse 14, he talks about my chains. Uh, Just notice how vivid that language is for a minute. Uh, Paul doesn't use a sort of legal euphemism. I'm on remand. My trial date is set for this. I'm at Her Majesty's pleasure, something like that. He talks about chains. He's shackled. And I I wonder how you would write a letter to our church if you were in prison for being a Christian, what would I write if I'd been chained up for telling people about Jesus? Now, I want you to know that I'm doing okay, but it's pretty cold in here. I'm pretty disappointed that I'm not going to do my missionary journey to Spain, but I am very grateful for the clothes that you sent with Epaphroditus. Thank you for that. Praise God that I'm still alive. But Paul writes, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is unbelievably upbeat about being in prison, about being in chains. He says, guys, no commiseration, celebrate. Why? Because his priority, his passion, the thing that gets him out of bed in the morning, the thing he cares about, is the advance of the gospel. The progress of the message about Jesus around the world. And that gives him a totally different perspective on his situation. Just notice there are two ways that being thrown in prison has actually advanced the gospel according to Paul. Uh, The first one's in verse 13. Have a look down at it. Verse 13, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, the the palace guard, that was was a body of about 9,000 men. They're basically, they're the best trained soldiers in Rome. Kind of picture a cross between the SAS and those guys who stand outside Buckingham Palace with the big furry hats on. That's what we're talking about here. They're um, they're 9,000 hardened soldiers. And Paul looks at the fact that he's been thrown in prison and he says essentially, well, look, if I wasn't in here in chains, these guys probably would have never heard about Jesus. And now they all have 9,000 soldiers, the whole palace guard, and it's become clear that I'm in chains for, for Christ. Now, you can imagine these guys in the mess, can't you, talking um, about what it was like guarding Paul. Have you, um, 
have you, uh, have you guarded this prisoner Paul yet? It's not like any of the prisoners I've ever guarded before. He hasn't given me any attitude. There's been no, no lip. He's not been trying to escape or anything like that. He just, just keeps on talking about this guy from, from Israel, this guy Jesus of Nazareth. He says that Jesus died so that I could be forgiven and have a relationship with God. He said Jesus has risen from the dead. And apparently, the only reason that he's in prison is because he won't stop telling people that. Like anyone I've ever guarded before. And the word begins to spread. And you see, Paul could have easily been discouraged. He could have easily been downbeat about all the doors that were closed for the gospel when he was thrown in chains. He could have easily been downhearted about how cold and uncomfortable and, I don't know, underfed he was. He could have licked his wounds and kept quiet. But Paul didn't see the closed doors behind him. He saw the open door for the gospel that his imprisonment represented. 9,000 people, and they're like a captive audience for this prisoner who can't stop talking about Jesus. And when we get this perspective, we see again and again that the God of the Bible is not snookered by opposition. The God of the Bible doesn't have his plans thrown out by hostility to the gospel. Again and again, God can sovereignly use opposition to advance his gospel forward. Uh, I've got a friend called Ben, and I've told some of you this story before, so I'm sorry for the repetition if you've heard it, but Ben used to work for a bank in the city of London, and um, he wrote a short booklet laying out the evidence um, for Jesus Christ for bankers. It was based around Warren Buffett's six investment principles, and if you don't know what those are, I don't know either, so don't worry about that, but uh, this was for bankers laying out the evidence for Jesus against these six principles to show them that it was worth trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, when it was published, this little booklet, he got into work early one morning, and he put one on every desk in the bank. Just over a thousand uh, people's desks had copies of these booklets left on them as they arrived at work at 9am. And he got down to his desk and and got on. And by 10.30 that morning, an email had gone round all employees apologising for the offensive content of Ben's booklet. At 10.35, Ben was called by Human Resources to go and explain himself. Can you imagine how how my mate felt? He was just a guy in his 20s, stood there in the elevator going up to the uh, office of human resources for this bank to explain himself for something they felt they'd needed to apologise to to everyone for. And um, an HR made my friend Ben go round to every person individually and personally apologise for what he'd done. Or to put it another way, his employer paid him for three days to explain the gospel to everyone who worked in his bank. And um, he said he could literally, when the email went round, he could see people pulling his book out of the bin because they wanted to know what all the fuss was about. What is this book that they have to apologise for? And they're getting open and reading it. Now, listen, I don't think that move was very good for Ben's career, 
And it probably led to quite a lot of embarrassment, having to go up to people he'd never met before and personally apologize for feeling that they needed to have this booklet about Jesus Christ. But I tell you what, brothers and sisters, what happened to him really served to advance the gospel. And you see, Paul says, change your perspective. If what matters is the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then opposition means something totally different. With our God, it means opportunity for the gospel. So what kind of card are you going to send to Paul? What kind of card are you going to want sent to you when things get hard? But uh, but then secondly, Paul says there's more, because it's not just that 9,000 people heard the gospel. Verse 14, have a look down at verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Do you see, the Christians in Rome had seen that God is not snookered by opposition. They'd seen that Paul was able to trust Jesus and speak for him boldly, and it had put steel in their hearts and opened their mouths to speak for Jesus. They had grown confident in the Lord. They'd been encouraged to speak more courageously and fearlessly themselves, And again and again, don't we see this so often? You know, you hear about Christians having a hard time in the media, and the temptation is to shrink a little bit, isn't it? But but you see a Christian friend at school stand for Jesus and speak up when it's costly, and doesn't it fill your heart with a kind of boldness that you, you, you can do it too? If my mate can do it, I know I can. Uh, you might know the story of Jim Elliot. Uh, in the 1950s, graduate of Wheaton College in the USA. And along with four other men and their wives, they went to be missionaries to a tribe in South America who'd never heard the gospel before. On their second encounter with the tribe, uh, the first one seemed to go quite well, but the second encounter, they were speared to death, and it made national headlines. And um, in some ways, it was a tragic story, but over the next decade, hundreds of graduates from Wheaton College in the USA went forward for missionary service around the world. Because sometimes when we see one of our own stand up and put Jesus first, the advance of the gospel as the thing, well, it fills our hearts with boldness too. And Paul says that passion for the advance of the gospel changes the way that you see opposition He says, don't send me commiseration, celebrate. Because with our God, opposition means opportunity for the gospel. Listen, let me ask you, how do you react when it gets hard to stand out for Jesus? How do you react when it's the sort of low-level pressure, the comments in, in banter about Christians, the fear of what human resources might do with your career? I don't know, my temptation when it gets hard is to take my foot off the gas. Just just tone it down a little bit as a Christian. Just, Just don't be quite so open about things. But just imagine for a moment. Imagine what it would be like if every time someone in your school or your uni or your workplace or your sports club or your gym, if every time they made a disparaging comment about God or religion or Christians, 
there was a Christian there who was prepared to say, actually, I follow Jesus. I have found him to be a compassionate and loving God worth giving everything for. Imagine the impact that might have for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, says Paul. Passion for the advance of the gospel changes the whole way that you see opposition. But then look, the second little paragraph, Paul says, passion for the advance of the gospel also changes the way that you see rivalry. The way that you see rivalry. Have a look down at verse 15 with me. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I mean, it must have been hard enough for Paul facing that kind of opposition from outside the church that he'd be chained up for telling people about Jesus. But here we see he also faced trouble from within the church. What's Paul describing here? Well, think about it like this. Most preachers in the ancient world were a bit like freelance musicians. Okay, so um, in the first century, there were a lot of... um, philosophers and other speakers who tour around the, the world and um, they speak for money. You know, they're paid per gig and that's how they manage to eat and clothe themselves and that sort of thing because they're, they're paid per gig. And most Christian preachers in the ancient world followed that same sort of pattern. You know, a small charge for hearing me speak means that I can then live and feed myself and that sort of thing. And Paul actually stood out in the ancient world because he refused to do that. He raised funds so that he wouldn't have to charge people to speak. But most preachers, it's a sort of pay-per-gig basis. And, you know, that's why, um, you know, if you know any um, freelance musicians, it's why they always have the best photos on social media and stuff like that. You know, it's why they have the best um, videos online and stuff like that because, you know, the rest of us are just putting up pictures of our kids eating ice creams. They have to actually... They're looking for business. That's why they've got those pictures like that up there because they're paid per gig. It's a competitive market. And Paul says, look, there are some people, verse 16 who preach the gospel out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. There are some people who are, who are telling others about Jesus because they know that's what my life is all about. They want to carry on the work. But there are others who are just thinking to themselves, great, more gigs for me. More, more fame, more acclaim for me. Verse 17, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me. If Paul is down, they're up. That's the idea. You know, it's like the, um, it's like the lead singer in a musical who gets a sore throat before the big opening night. You know, everyone sends flowers and says sorry, but, but they're not really sorry because it's opportunity for other people. And um, you can imagine them, can't you? You can imagine them sort of dropping little comments about Paul 
just, just around, you know, around the church in Rome. You know, he, he always was a bit, a bit hard line about things. Uh, maybe if he was a bit wiser like me, he wouldn't have ended up in prison. You know, just sniping at his character. It's important, to, um, it's important to notice they're not false teachers Paul's talking about here. It's not that what they're saying is dodgy. Three times he says they preach Christ. Now, Paul wasn't the sort of person who, um, who didn't really care what people had to say. You know, as long as they talk about Jesus, they're fine. No, Paul says they're preaching Christ. But the issue is that they're doing it for, um, for mixed motives and bad motives. They're ambitious. They're looking over their shoulder at other people. And to be honest, it's easy to believe that this would happen if we know our own hearts at all. Don't you find sometimes that another Christian is really going for it? And there's just a little bit of you that feels mixed about that. I, as I said, was on a conference this week. And I have to tell you, the temptation I felt to feel very envious of two or three of my friends was enormous because of how successful their ministries are and the growth that they're seeing. And I have to repent of that because that comes from selfish ambition and not ambition for the gospel. You know, I have to say, I can think of one or two really courageous gospel ministers over the years where I've heard people make those little sniping comments about them. Oh, he's very angular. If only he'd said that in a wiser way or something like that. Men who really stood for the gospel and Christians have just quietly just trashed their reputation. And here's the thing. Paul is not even a tiny bit bothered about that. If being in prison is hard, you'd have thought having his motives questions and his character maligned would be even harder, but it has exactly zero impact on Paul's desire for the gospel to advance. Look again at verse 18. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. What's more important than your motives? More important than your motives is that people hear about Jesus. What's more important than your reputation More important than your reputation is that people hear about Jesus. Uh, the, uh, The writer and preacher Don Carson puts this brilliantly. He says, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, the misunderstanding of our motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we're called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. I wonder, do we see that? Church is not actually a club for people to think well of you. We want Jesus' name to be glorified and proclaimed, and that's what really matters. You know, in 200 years' time, almost no one will remember my name or yours, 
But if the name of Jesus is proclaimed widely and boldly in this country, the consequences will be eternal. Passion for the advance of the gospel changes the way that you see rivalry in the church. If our reputation has to come down so that his can go up, is that not worth it, says Paul? Whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice, says Paul. Let me ask you the question, what do you measure your life by as a Christian? What's your measure of success? What gets you out of bed in the morning and you think, if today this happens, that's a win for me? What are you passionate about? And how high does the advance of the gospel feature in those priorities? Because Paul's perception of everything in his life is completely shaped by the fact that the advance of the gospel, people knowing Jesus is the thing. Not my life and my comfort, but his name and reputation. I have to be honest, if you looked at my diary over the last few months or some of my conversations at the school gate, I think you'd conclude that the things I'm passionate about are my comfort and my reputation with other people. And because of that, I'm easily discouraged in my sharing the gospel with um, people who don't believe. But if my biggest aspiration, if the thing that drove me was the advance of the gospel, in the way that it does sometimes, but if that was true of me more and more, then I'd have a sticking power and a joy in speaking to people that often I lack, but do know in my best moments. I think we find it easy to get discouraged as Christians, don't we? Um, uh, I don't think for most of us, you can, you can tell me if it's different for you, but I don't think for most of us that we face the sort of opposition that our brothers and sisters do in northern Nigeria. But I guess for lots of us, we feel discouraged in speaking to people about Jesus because of the sort of sense of general apathy and indifference from people we speak to. It feels like you take a lot of risks with your comfort and reputation often for very little return. There's a lot of apathy and indifference out there. And maybe sometimes, just sometimes, it's because of a sense of inadequacy as well. If only I was a bit more dramatic and a bit more smart, people would really be convinced. But I think if we take on board what Paul is saying here, we won't be defeatist or discouraged when we speak about Jesus with people, however they respond Paul says, learn to view history through the lens by which all things will be measured, the progress of Jesus' gospel. What if my measure of my success at work, at university, at school, in my sports club, what if my measure of success was how many of the people around me have heard about Jesus? I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul says what really matters is Jesus and his glory. That the one who died on a cross and rose again, the one who will one day come to rule, 
He is the center of life for every Christian. And when we get that, when we're passionate for the advance of the gospel, it changes the way that we see opposition and rivalry. You speak to a friend and and get a mixed response, but don't write out that pastel-colored commiseration card just yet. Celebrate as the gospel has advanced just a few more words and phrases into their life. Hear about that friend overseas really struggling away for the gospel. Don't commiserate, celebrate as the gospel of Jesus goes forward. More people hearing about him, whatever the cost, whatever the dent in our reputation. That's Paul's perspective and I pray that it would be ours more and more. Why don't we pray now? Father God in heaven, we pray that we might be those who rejoice, who build our lives on the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to know him and enjoy him more, that he would be at the center of all that we are and all that we do and say and how we see every circumstance. In Jesus' name, amen.